Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Andrew Kutnick. Andrew Kutnick is a PhD and a research scientist studying the influence of lifestyle and metabolism on health, disease, and performance. He originally began his research path at Florida State University in exercise science. During his time at Florida State University, Andrew was trained in the Human Sciences Cardiovascular Laboratory, studying the influence of nutrition, exercise, supplementation, and environmental extremes on health-based outcomes in normal and clinical populations across cardiovascular, autonomic, and skeletal muscle tissue systems. Andrew then was awarded the Presidential Fellowship to attend the University of South Florida, where he received his doctorate in biomedical sciences. Andrew's research focused on studying metabolism and metabolic therapies for health, disease, and performance outcomes. Beyond his primary efforts in academia, Andrew Kutnick was invited to give a TEDx talk on his personal journey using lifestyle and metabolic factors to manage his type 1 diabetes For over 14 years. Andrew's journey with type 1 diabetes has given and continues to give an incredible in-depth perspective into the world of our metabolism, how it works, how day-to-life sometimes moment-by-moment influences it, and how these changes on metabolism can have far-reaching effects over other aspects of our physiology. For this particular episode, we discuss two topics in detail the emerging evidence around and against low carbohydrate approaches for exercise performance, most specifically endurance exercise, and then also weighing the health implications of both high and low carbohydrate diets in the context of exercise, most specifically around glucose and lipid control. So it's sort of like two main topics there. And this is a little bit of a longer episode. So we got into it quite a bit with that stuff. Um, it was a lot of fun. I think I'm definitely going to have Andrew back on at some point and talk about more because I know he is highly motivated to continue researching things. And I'm sure he is going to have a lot to share in the years to come. Before we get rolling with Andrew, just a couple quick announcements. Uh, Outliers ATX is a group run that I help host on Sunday mornings. So if you are in Austin or visiting Austin and want to meet up for a few miles, you can find details to Outliers ATX on the Instagram page, which is just at Outliers ATX. We meet at Mets Park at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Also, if you're interested in some support in your training, I have a variety of coaching options on my website, zachbitter.com, where you can get things as simple as pre-made plans or things as detailed as one-on-one work with me and also consultations. If you just want to hop on a call and chat about some topics or things, you can also sign up for those there. That's zachbitter.com. If you want to support the podcast and help it grow, there's a few great options for that. Most of those are located over at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. From there, you can do things like join the Patreon page, make a contribution, check out the catalog. I've got the full list of previous episodes on there. So if you want to see the details of those and find out episodes you may have missed that are interesting to you, or just remind yourself where they are and share them, that's a great spot to go. Also, one thing that really helps if you like an episode and you want to share it with your friends, family, and on social media, that goes a long ways to helping me grow the show. In fact, I'm going to start a new initiative. If you share a podcast episode that you like on your social media and tag me, I am going to enter you into a raffle for a free consultation. So I think what I'll probably end up doing is I'll be collecting that data over the course of a month and I'll raffle off a consultation each month 
and likely announce that on the podcast, or if you prefer, just reach out privately to set that sort of stuff, that sort of stuff up. So if you're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just tag me when you share the episode so that I know that you did it. I'll put you on the list for the raffle for that. Uh, before we get rolling, just one last shout out to the show sponsors. This episode sponsors are Element T Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. Element T just launched their new grapefruit. I shouldn't say new. They've had it before, but it's seasonal. So it's here for the summer is their grapefruit flavor. So they have that available now. If you head to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO, you'll let them know that you came to them through this podcast and you'll also be offered a free sample pack. So with your first order, you get a free sample pack. If you use that link, drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO, that will include citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango chili, raw, unflavored. Each one of their packets has a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. For me, that means I mix one of those in about two liters of water and use that even before and during some of my longer and hotter training sessions. This year, I actually added a new product to my training and racing routine. And on this podcast, I've actually jumped into some of the research on this, both in the past and currently, as this, this is a very evolving topic. Um, the latest research on exogenous ketones motivated me to consider trying them out. I've been using Delta G formulation mainly because basically all the research showing promising benefits on recovery and performance have been done using their formula. They're the original ketone ester out of Oxford university through the work of professor Kieran Clark, who has been critical part of exogenous ketone research and formulation. They actually received a DARPA grant in effort to design a formula for special forces. Since then, Delta G has purchased, has produced 50 plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. This includes two very recent studies that explored exogenous ketone relationship with increasing natural levels of EPO, as well as increasing circulating dopamine concentration, improving mental alertness and improving post-exercise inflammation in endurance athletes. If uh, you're interested in more details on that, you can check out my episode with Brian McMahon, which just recently launched. We dive into a lot of that stuff and where the research is heading with that and what we may see in the future, as well as other athletes that are using exogenous ketones in their training and racing. So right now, my protocol is pretty simple. Uh, I will actually take a bottle of Delta G Performance uh, before a big workout. So if I'm going for like, say, a three-hour long run, I'll just take a bottle of Delta G before that and be on my way. If it's a race, like a longer ultra marathon, I'll do that same protocol, one bottle of Delta G performance before, I'll just take another one every three hours after that. And that's it. So if you wanna take a look at what they got, you can head over to their website, which is just deltagketones.com. And there they have all their research highlighted, and they also have an opportunity to sign up for a free consultation. And they will walk you through whether or not they think that the protocol is going to be something useful for your lifestyle and point you in the right direction. So they make so you're making sure you're doing the protocol right. That's actually how I got and connect, connected with them originally was going through their consultation stuff on their website and talking to Brian and figuring out what would be a good, a good protocol for me. So that would be deltagketones.com. You can also follow them on Instagram, which is just at deltag.ketones. Dr. Andrew Kutnick, thank you for joining the show. 
Zach, it is a, it's pretty cool to be here. I, I, as I've told you a little bit before we got on, I'm very familiar with you and what you've accomplished, which is, it was unique and cool. And, um, it's always fun conversation to get into, uh, discussions on exercise, nutrition, maybe even the context of disease, which, uh, obviously I have one. So it, it, these are all passionate topics for me. Yeah. Yeah. You've got reason to be engaged with all of it. So it's interesting to talk to folks like yourself and, um, I, you know, the funny thing is I actually first came across you, I believe it was kind of a combination of things. Actually, I came across your Twitter profile and around the same time I connected the dots that you were involved with Dr. Diagostino's lab. And, you know, I've had Dr. Diagostino on the show before and have just been like engaging with his work for as long as I can remember from my world or my time in the low carb world. And then uh, on top of that, around that same time that the new paper just got released that was talking about just uh, low carbohydrate performance. And, you know, my ears always perk up when I hear a new study coming out about low carbohydrate performance, because it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, I follow low carbohydrate myself, I participate professionally in endurance sport. So like any new research, even if it produces more questions than answers or something that I'm interested in seeing to kind of see, like, is there anything in here that is going to like shine a light on stuff that I've been doing or haven't been doing and opportunity to optimize, adjust and all that stuff. So uh, that paper came around um, and you were involved with that one as well as some other folks that I know and I've talked to about it too. So I thought it was a great time to kind of bring you on the show and just kind of hear your story as well as just maybe get into the weeds a little bit more with uh, some of the stuff that I've talked about along the lines of that, that most recent paper and kind of everything that kind of surrounds it. Yeah. I uh, So you bring up Dom and actually my experience into this kind of uh, kind of trail, so to speak, uh, to getting to the this point where I'm sitting here today talking to you is, I actually started in exercise phys. I studied uh, uh, kind of the health, disease, and extreme environment, so to speak, of uh, cardiovascular and autonomic health. I was always fascinated about exercise and thought I was going to become a you know a doctor, like a real doctor, not a PhD, you know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I I would have loved I would have liked that. I, I don't know if I. And I thought, you know, I want to do something I love every single day. And that's when I uh, committed completely to research and went and studied biomedical health and joined Dominic Diagostino's lab and studied something that I had actually done for myself. You know, I have type one diabetes and I had always uh, realized if not, if, if no disease can treat, teach you that nutrition matters, it's type one diabetes where everything you eat directly or in, uh, depending on what you eat, of course, carbohydrates being more impactful than others uh, will directly impact glucose levels. Um, and, uh, it really brought to the forefront of not only my own personal life, but also the things we're studying the impact of nutrition, um, and maybe it's role in disease. And that's directly what we were studying in, uh, Dom's lab. And also, uh, looked at the context of maybe some of the metabolic differences, uh, all the way to metabolites, uh, like say ketone bodies, uh, normally given a pretty bad rap, uh, actually from my disease over a hundred years ago, um, because of the increased ketone levels were associated with death, uh, mm. with patients with type one diabetes. Um, and obviously that's been a revolution to see the change in dialogue scientifically around ketone bodies, uh, which is a kind of a whole different arena. But nonetheless, that didn't lead me to study the context of ketone bodies, uh, uh, nutrient changes that may elevate or decrease ketone bodies, um, and ultimately studying that in context of uh, at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, as well in elite level performers. Um, so uh, all the way, uh, not just necessarily someone who goes and runs uh, sporting events, but actual operational right. components. You know, it could be military, could be. Um, um, 
people who just operate at a very, very high level and where nutrition can matter or ketones can matter. So we've studied that as well. And then ultimately, uh, this entire time I've been studying my own disease, type one diabetes, and have made the full transition to committing, uh, to studying that, uh, for the long haul and transition away from, um, some of the original work in the department of defense and ultimately to, uh, which we're still doing, uh, to really trying to understand diabetes as a disease and nutrition's impact on it. Um, and, uh, something that clearly I'm very passionate about. Yeah. You know, this is maybe a little bit of a sidebar, but, uh, when you were explaining, explaining that stuff, you made me remember something I heard you speak on a different podcast, which was about a, I think it was a department of defense initiative where they were actually looking at the actual partitioning of rations for the infield forces. And it was like, they, maybe it was you that was involved in a study they were doing where they were actually comparing, I believe it was like cliff bars with a keto brick. So it's basically like a fat yeah. versus a carbohydrate ration to yeah. see like, because uh, I mean, I think like when you think about it, like there's obviously like the nuance within performance that we seem to be learning more and more about in terms of how a reduction in carbohydrate is going to either negatively or positively impact that you get on the, the field. It's like, that's such a high consequence environment. You kind of need to have the answer, or if you don't have the answer, you have to be at least more confident in one than the other. So is there... I don't remember if the podcast had like how deep you, you all went into that particular topic, but was, is that something that it's still looking at or? Yeah. So we actually, uh, we did two iterations of that study. So I was uh, heavily involved in that from the design all the way to completion of that project. Um, and that was study, uh, that was, um, published in, uh, a journal or, uh, uh, APS journal. And the goal of that was to look at two MRE equivalents. So we, so this was actually a slightly different. So we have done studies where we actually look at, um, uh, military service members and studies where we are looking at studies that might help model uh, environments if, if we can't actually study uh, the direct end user in some cases because studies we we do are looking all the way from health to disease to performance and and performance might be you know the average joe off the street can we make someone who's maybe metabolically unhealthy perform a little bit better all the way to someone who's at, at really their their life and career and commitment and ultimately their performance has maybe not the, maybe the largest consequences, um, uh, especially in, in the military uh, and something that I think a lot of people may not always appreciate is performance there is, is, has, has major implications, both cognitively and physically. But that study was looking at a, a, a thousand calories, uh, comparing very, very high carbohydrate kind of meal supplementation versus a very low carbohydrate ketogenic uh, meal supplementation, just, just a single bar. So individuals who had committed themselves to just a standard dietary approach. Uh, these were all athletes, uh, not super competitive, you could call them recreational. And uh, they conducted two different trials. We actually tracked them using continuous glucose monitors, which hasn't been published yet. We will publish that component soon. And we looked at the, the implications of a thousand calorie bar. And that why, why would we ca care about a thousand calories? Well, if you look at uh, MREs, which are used in the military out in the field, so field rations, uh, Meals ready to eat is MRE. And those are around 1,000 calories a piece. And that's what they're providing individuals out in the field. So we thought, okay, we want to provide a comparison because what is currently the MRE is very, very high carbohydrate rations because that's what most people are eating. But we thought, okay, what if you didn't do that? What if you had a much, much more calorically dense and lighter weight food equivalent because fat is obviously uh, lighter per gram 
uh, or sorry, per K cow, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe you can reduce the weight and would that decrease performance? Cause there's some hypothesis that it might, and it, it, and both bars were equivalent. So we, to compare the two bars, we used, uh, multiple cliff bars to something called a keto brick mm -hmm. and, uh, and everyone performed exactly the same. Now, fat oxidation was different, um, uh, much higher on the keto brick. Um, that could be for two reasons. One, the robust amount of fat calories that were consumed. It was a thousand calorie bar uh, right before uh, a ruck, a, a military ruck, uh, uh, incline ruck for uh, up to about an hour. So the, it, the performance was the same. And I think that theme kind of is, is transcending um, multiple topics. Obviously, you had talked earlier before about the idea of an alternative study we did, which was looking at four weeks of low carbohydrate versus high carbohydrate diet. And that, that also um, uh, produced a much, much different study, much more intensive, but ultimately produced some pretty uh, similar findings. And that performance was equivalent across, even if you were habituating to a diet on very, very low carb ketogenic diet, for up to four weeks. Um, and, uh, that, that really, uh, opens up a whole new, uh, can of worms because it was very, very high intensity work. So, um, and, and I don't know what your training is like Zach, but I know when you actually perform and do your very, very long duration trail runs, very, very different than the physiology that would be required to perform what we were doing, which is one mile time trials and repeat sprint performance. So, you know, eight by 600 meters, um, and really asking people to go all out. And these were highly competitive, uh, individuals, high VO2 maxes, but there's some interesting nuance in that study that, um, if your audience is interested, we can kind of get into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think we might as well jump right into that. Cause I think it's, and it's even semi, like, I shouldn't even say semi it's, it's fairly directly like important in terms of a consideration for even the stuff that I do, like even like on race day, you know, I can be out there running like at or below my aerobic threshold most of the time. So it's like your opportunities to uh, like upregulate fat metabolism and have it be something where it's like, you know, you can, you can get, a, I don't want to say get away with it, but you're sort of like, you're getting away with it to some degree uh, at a much higher rate. Then you're looking more about duration in terms of like, even if there's like a small, like a small amount of carbohydrate or glycogen usage how does that extrapolate over like an entire day versus like what you'd see in like a marathon or shorter? So that's kind of the equation you're working on a race day. But then in the training, it's uh, very much has the components of say, like what you mentioned, like the a workout to the degree of like an eight by 600 meter wouldn't be something too foreign to my training plan. It would just be an order of operations thing. I'd be doing that likely earlier in my training plan versus like someone who's training for a race that's at around that intensity. So around their VO2 max they're going to be doing those type of workouts closer to competition day so that they're optimizing right. from a, uh, spe uh, specificity component of it. Uh, so yeah, I'm always interested to hear, I think like in terms of variables that are going to move the needle on race day, I would say it's probably a much smaller variable than say that person racing a three K or a five K, but it's still right. there. So it's fun yeah. to hear that stuff. Yeah. That, that study, um, and it's, it's always amazing to hear the uh, individual end user. So in yourself, a performing athlete at the highest level um, and hearing their real world experience in various contexts. And the context that we were studying uh, was looking at um, very, very high intense, short duration exercise, because the idea was that, you know, carbohydrates is particularly important, um, maybe more so glycogen is particularly important in these uh, short duration exercise bouts. And, you know, this is as stated, a one mile time trial. So as fast as you can perform that. Uh, all the way to a repeated spent six by 800 meters. And, uh, you know, these were, it's important to mention as well that this study design was set up to be as controlled as possible. We were trying to make sure that we could 
extract diet specific effects. Now, a lot of studies don't always do that. There's many variables that affect performance and metabolic health that are not controlled for. Uh, so we controlled calories, we controlled training load across the entire intervention. So we kept them the same throughout. Um, we also uh, attempted to, we attempted to control for uh, protein intake. Now it was slightly higher in low carb group by just the ecological nature of the diet. Uh, it was 30 grams higher, which isn't massive, but not insignificant. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not super important to the overall, maybe more so important for things like body composition, less so on the, what we we're actually looking at, uh, which is uh, ultimately um, components of fat oxidation, uh, carbohydrate oxidation, and ultimately short duration performance. And we also control for compliance. So we had a registered dietitian track everything and monitor uh, and have all the you know food logs associated with this, but also track uh, ketone body elevation. So this is a unique diet where you can actually look at blood metrics of compliance. You know, it might not always tell you compliance, but it's if it goes up compared to not, uh, that's that's very informative that they're potentially can, uh, actually habituating to a carbohydrate restriction. Uh, I think another in, important contributor uh, to this diet is a crossover design. Now, the crossover design allows for the individual to act to be the same person. You know, in a lot of mm -hmm. studies, you have two completely genetically dissimilar groups. Um, and, you know, the degree of genetic dissimilarity is, is kind of hard. It's al almost never quantified unless it's a genetic study. And in, and in crossover design, you're controlling for the genetics of the individual, the environment the individual uh, lives in on a regular basis and how they train. And so all those things really help us isolate out diet specific impact. And the, the two diets we were looking at, it was a high carbohydrate uh, north of 350 grams of carbohydrate intake per day at 60% of kcals to a low carbohydrate diet, which is less than 50 grams around more exactly 40 grams of carbohydrates per day. And they did that for four weeks. The reason behind the four weeks was important. There's a lot of studies less than four weeks that show a, a marginal decline in performance with switching to a low carbohydrate diet. But there's a lot of literature showing that it takes at least three weeks or greater to actually start seeing some normalization of things like ketone metabolites post diet switch. Uh, and there's also, if you really start looking at the meta data on these two different dietary paradigms, you start to see that at or greater than four weeks, depending on regardless of the study design or the type of duration or, uh, the duration exercise, the type of exercise that things start to become a lot more neutral, but you I mean outcomes, performance outcomes, like you can eat either diet and perform the same. But if you start looking, especially for, except for extremely long duration exercise, like you participate in Zach, where there might be a, a clear advantage to higher carb or sorry, lower carb, uh, performance in that context, if you're really sticking to it and habituating to it, but either way, um, this idea is that we wanted to compare performance across these two. Now the assumption might be, uh, well, carbohydrates are, are superior king in the context of short duration exercise because carbohydrates are being utilized. And we didn't see any difference between these two, um, diets. Uh, but what was, but in performance, so one mile time trial to, to max effort and then uh, six by 800 meter sprints. Now the the question is how was that supported you know how is the athlete supporting that type of performance effort um if they're consuming extremely low carbohydrate intake um and a lot of studies which although we didn't actually assess glycogen content so it's a limitation here the uh based on almost all prior literature we would be we would assume that there was a glycogen deficit not only because the athletes um uh, most studies like let's say you look at finney's study um um, so, uh, actually uh, quite a number of studies, there's quite universally a deficit, unless you look at, um, Jeff Volk's study, which was 
individuals who habituate for a very, very, very long time, nine months, 36 months on either a high carb or low carbohydrate diet and very, very, very high end performing athletes. But shorter duration, you know, let's say four weeks, 12 weeks, uh, even um, six to eight months, we still see these deficits in glycogen. And the question is, you know, is consistent. So that we would assume that that's associated with performance decline. And there's literature to show that even repeated sprints can decline muscle glycogen sufficient after a three minutes of, of max effort to then de decline subsequent performance after the three minutes of all out effort. Um, and so that, that opens the idea of, well, we were doing repeated sprints and they were low carb and there was no difference in performance. So, so how, you know, how are these athletes having equivalent performance? And, um, what was quite remarkable, although that's totally surprising, uh, was that when we looked at substrate oxidation. So systemic substrate oxidation is, is measured kind of using these estimated calculations where the amount of oxygen consumed, the amount of CO2 uh, uh, exhaled out um, is captured and then uh, measured. And these equations have, have shown to be pretty reliable in actually capturing the amount of fat oxidized and carbohydrate oxidized during an exercise bout or even at rest. And up to a point, which we can talk about, but nonetheless, we saw that there was a massive increase in the amount of fat oxidized during these even greater than 85% of their VO2 max repeated sprints. And so um, we were seeing individuals north of 1.85 grams per minute. That's massive. And, and to our knowledge, no one has ever recorded levels that high in a published study before. Now, there probably has been people who recorded that before, but it's to my knowledge, never been published. Mm -hmm. And so how are these individuals, you know, seeing these record levels of fat oxidation um, during exercise? Well, that's a more interesting, uh, undetermined uh, answer, because, you know, we didn't do biochemical muscle biopsies here. And that's really the way to kind of get at that question. But nonetheless, we saw equivalent performance. We saw massive increases in fat oxidation, record levels of it. Um, and that seems to be how these individuals were sustaining their performance was uh, utilizing a, a tremendous amount of fat uh, during their exercise. And frankly, we were likely underestimating these record levels. Um, we know that these calculations are usually valid up to about 70% um, of VO2 max and become precipitously less valid as you go higher and higher. And the reason for that is you have uh, greater levels of lactate production at higher intensities and higher hydrogen ion production. So higher acid load and those, uh, hydrogen ions ultimately interact with bicarbonate, uh, and bicarbonate plus a hydrogen ion ultimately, um, create water and CO2 and that elevation in CO2 that is then off gas can then, uh, skew, uh, towards higher carbohydrate oxidation. So this 1.85 grams per minute, we were seeing some participants. Uh, was almost certainly an underestimation of the true fat oxidation potential um, that they were actually observing uh, due to the expected higher acid load that we would see at these higher intensities. And lactate did go up, so it was higher acid load. So all says that uh, we were seeing record levels and, and probably an underestimation of just how much fat was being oxidized. But it appeared that fat oxidation was supporting these individuals. But the biggest caveat that really shocked me as someone who lives with a disease that glycemic uh, control is uh, of paramount importance is that 30% of the individuals actually had resting levels and fasting levels. So 24 hour over 31 days and fasted levels of glucose that were in the pre-diabetic range. And I'll, I'll leave it there and just leave it open-ended for you, Zach, but I will just yeah. say that that was, that was not expected. Okay. No, nothing about that. Do I think, okay. an, an individual who's around 15 to 16% on average percent body fat, um, 
they are running about 50 kilometers per week. Their VO2 max is for 40 year olds. So these weren't like 18 to 25 year olds. These were 40 year old, uh, continuously competitive athletes who were all runners, um, all competitive and VO2 max is uh, approximately, uh, for the mean of the group, um, at 58 to 60, uh, uh, mLs per kg per minute. I mean, they were super fit, super lean, uh, great athletes by all means and exercising a hell of a lot. And, mm -hmm. uh, and they're still seeing pre-diabetic values on, uh, continuously monitoring glucose. We're not getting like a single snapshot. We didn't get a single snapshot of, of fasting plasma values. We got about 280 to 72 times the resolution by actually tracking glucose values every minute of every single day for 31 days. in these athletes on both diets, the same individuals. So, um, either way, very, very fascinating area and topic, but, uh, uh, I'll leave it open-ended to your, what you think about that, Zach. Yeah, no, that was a great description because I think it highlights the two kind of main kind of themes I want to touch on with this. And one is in the through the lens of just the performance side of things, like what does what we saw in that study, how does that extrapolate into real world training based like or what can we extrapolate? Like where is the line in terms of where now this is no longer like something that we can reasonably predict versus, or maybe we can, and then the health component side of it, because like you mentioned, the, you know, this isn't just all about performance at the end of the day. And I think the, the part that I always laugh at a little bit is when people will look at some of the research we see in athletes towards performance. And if we want to be as charitable as possible and say like, this indicates that, you know, let's say we're looking at Olympic athletes and carbohydrate usage. It's like, the research is pointing heavily towards moderate to high carbohydrate in that population. That population is very unique and very, very small. So like in terms of what that means to the average person is going to be an individual question, first of all, but it's also going to be like a question of relevance in terms of what other variables are in place for the average person that are not there for someone who's building their life around a single event. And then also just like, how much are they prioritizing their performance at that single event in exchange for potential health consequences and not necessarily at a population average. Cause I think you look at the average Olympic athlete, especially in endurance sport, they're going to outlive and probably outthrive the average person. But that's sort of a false comparison in my opinion, either because we should be looking at relative to what they could do alternatively, not what the average person who's probably making a whole host of mistakes if we look at just their average lifestyle choices and things like that are going to be able to do yep. when they're optimized. So it's sort of a bunch of apples and oranges comparisons that I think actually just muddies the water when the people start getting into like Twitter debates about it. So I also want well, to hear like, yeah, oh, it, brings yeah. up, it brings up a very uh, a controversial and interesting topic though, Zach, because I think you nailed it. Um, and I'm willing to go uh, all, right into the mud of this okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in, in that um, it, this is a very controversial topic. Okay. This I, well, first off, low carbon, high carb is like the uh, antithesis of controversy, uh, over the last five years, right. On, especially mm -hmm. on social media. Uh, but I think you bring up an incredible point and in that, you know, about the health component and also this elite level performance, uh, literature and, and what's good and what's bad for elite level performance. Cause often people look at you, Zach, or they might look at Olympic competitors and say, what are these individuals doing? Okay, I want to do that because mm -hmm. everyone looks for the model of the best to understand what they should do. Uh, why not, right? Like if I have type 1 diabetes and I want to have certain outcomes, I'm, I'm going to look for someone who models and represents 
the outcomes I want to achieve, which is the better, the, I want more of the good. I want, I, you know, I want the best performance, but the truth is 99% of people will never be elite. 99% of people. In fact, let's just let's, let's do the opposite. Over 85% of the United States is overweight or obese. Um, and so they're metabolically compromised. So the vast majority of people, uh, are not metabolically healthy, at least based on that definition of, of whether they're overweight or obese, right? So there's other metrics you could use for quantifying metabolic health, but in the context of just looking at body composition, which we know is important and predictive of overall health, 85% um, uh, of people in the United States aren't doing well, and it's rising north of 60% in even European countries, uh, and it seems like it's becoming a pretty worldwide problem. So most people aren't metabolically well, but what's interesting about our study is that even in extremely fit people uh, who are competing great VO2 maxes and doing exceptionally well, there was a distinct difference between uh, glycemic parameters of health uh, between those who habituate to a high carb versus those who habituate to a low carb diet. Now, let's go back for a second and talk about exercise because some people may construe this as uh, well, endurance exercise, long duration is not good, especially if you're doing a high carb diet, because you might get prediabetes. I, I want to uh, uh, assure everyone that exercising is better than not exercising. So we can start with that. Um, uh, no matter what, pretty much, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you should probably be exercising in 99% of scenarios versus not exercising. Um, but the, the question then comes up, well, in our study, we directly compared how diet implicates individuals, uh, high carb versus low carb and the individuals on the high carb diet. Cause we didn't see this on low carb, everyone on the low carb diet, all but one participant improved their glycemic control. And by improve, what does that mean? Uh, they lowered their mean and median glucose over fasting and 24 hour windows for 31 days. And they saw less variability and their glycemic control. Uh, so it wasn't just that it was postprandial hyperglycemia that was driving their mean to go up. No, no, no. Their fasting levels were in the ADA definition levels of prediabetes. Now, people may want to see uh, a oral glucose tolerance test or an HbA1c, but our study was four weeks in duration. So four weeks isn't long enough for an HbA1c and oral glucose tolerance tests are not valid with low carbohydrate diets. They were only made to be used on high carbohydrate habituated diets. So the, I, I, in my opinion, the CGM was the best metric we had in this environment and arguably one of the best metrics we have for continuously monitored dynamic changes in glycemic health. Um, that said, you know, if 30% of individuals on this diet or on the high carb diet specifically, we're having these levels, is that a health concern? And I think that opens up the bigger question is clearly, if you look at the literature in the diabetes world, so the disease I have for type one diabetes and type two diabetes, or even non-diabetic populations, there's a dose dependent relationship between essentially, uh, all, uh, all cause mortality, um, and, uh, elevated levels of glucose levels above normal. Okay. Now in the type one diabetes world, some people would say, okay, well, no, there's not really that much risk until you get uh, above, a, you know, like say 6.5 or 7%, but that's very disease specific. Uh, we're talking about very specific disease pathology. I just want to address that. Cause I know some people I, that's been brought up to me a number of times is like, well, you know, what's the real benefit of going below 7% HbA1c and reality is, is, is the better, the closer you can get to normal, the better, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I would assume that having anywhere near above 7% is questionable. But it does open up a topic, Zach, it does open up the topic to, is it of consequence for an athlete to be running a high carbohydrate diet if they're generating pre-diabetic levels of, of glucose and not just during their feeding windows, but actually at, at fasted levels, 
And my opinion has actually changed quite a bit over the last uh, few months since we published that study about why that might be. And, and is there uh, potential long-term consequences with that? And I'll, I'll kind of open it to, to you to see your thoughts on that before we delve into that. Yeah, this is perfect. I think, first of all, I've got kind of two questions. One is, is this something that we've seen reproduced in other studies with athletes? Because I would imagine like, when I'm just thinking of like a professional endurance athlete, I would think like they would be getting at least annual blood tests drawn and they would be able to see if they have fasting levels of pre-diabetic blood glucose. Are we seeing similar numbers in that population? And I sort of have a follow-up question to that because I could see a scenario in which that would maybe not be the case, even if we do have that literature. And it would be if they are professional enough, because like we say things like elite and professional and stuff like that, but like really like if if we want to put a strict definition on that, let's say people who are actually like competing in a sport that's deriving the majority of their income. So it's like very, 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 we're talking percent, like 0 .0 some percentage of the population at this point. So we're getting out of town to the, the tippiest part of the spear. I think the sport selects for so much, either just natural ability to tolerate things above and beyond what we'd see on average. So therefore yeah. it would maybe not show up in that population because had it, shown up in somebody, they would have never made it that far. They would have gotten teased out due to the both, both, both the, the practices of being an Olympic endurance athlete, which is going to be basically moderate to high carbohydrate. So it's almost like, let's say you have someone who's going to health-wise negatively respond to that dietary practice. They're never going to get to the Olympics because they're going to get eliminated earlier in the process along the way, as they start to try to implement that program. And then it starts failing them from a, maybe a health standpoint, or potentially as we may find out later from a performance uh, standpoint for them at the individual level as well. Yeah. And uh, well, to back up to your original question about the consistency that, uh, that we see in these potential athletes. And the, the thing is, I think that the, the overwhelming assumption is that athletes are going to be protected. You know, like athletes at, engaging in exercise is one of the most healthy things you can do. Okay. Mm -hmm. Irrespective of diet, engaging in regular exercises is, is almost universally protective until you get to the very, very extreme. And then there's some unique kind of like wide variation in, in how some people are going to actually respond to that, which might get to your point as Maybe that's self-selecting for some people who are prepared for that and some who maybe are not, or those who engage in a healthy means of going to the extreme compared to the average person, but is it extreme for them? Um, is it consistent? So we've actually looked um, at part of a secondary assessment of what we did for this four-week study of low-carb versus high-carb was to look at all literature um, using continuous glucose monitors because it gives such a greater level of resolution on the continuous glycemic control, not only for the averages they're achieving, but the, the variation and dynamics of their glycemic, uh, by their internal endogenous homeostasis of glucose. And there have been, to my knowledge, five studies that actually looked at multi-day continuous glycemic variables. I don't mean like, okay, they wore a CGM and did exercise and they monitored it. That's a very different situation during exercise than it is for someone who's living every single day and habituating multiple days. And there's a reason for that. During exercise, there's a lot of glycemic changes, and we would expect, uh, depending on the type of exercise, if you go and do sprints, you know, and we put a CGM on you, I expect that you'll probably see some elevations in your glucose and response to the stress response of that high intensity uh, exercise. Where if you go do very prolonged low intensity work, I could see that some individuals, depending on how long it is, could go hypoglycemic, is, as is the case for some individuals around this concept of bonking with hypoglycemia, which is actually originally assessed all the way back in the 1920s in JAMA, where they were actually doing biochemical analysis of glucose, looking at athletes showing up to the end of a race, a marathon race, 
looking like ghostly, mm-hmm. um, slurring their words, uh, uh, very, very uh, irritable. Uh, and what they found is that a, a biochemical assessment that I believe the date was 1921 in, in, in um, the Journal of American Medical Association, so JAMA, uh, and saw levels in the 40s in these athletes uh, post-marathon. And so that brought up this concept all the way 100 years back about this idea of bonking in athletes. Um, but ultimately, glycemic control is still important to overall athletes. And what we're seeing when looking at athletes who have war CGMs over multiple days, there is a very small percentage of athletes that seem to have elevated glucose levels when they're controlling for things. Like in our study, we controlled for diet, activity, uh, multiple sensor batches over multiple diets in the same individual. So we did a lot of controls in there and we saw 30%. These are also 40-year-olds though. So 40-year-olds are right at that tipping point between young and healthy and kind of very protected, although not universally protected, but very protected to this middle stage before you get to above 80 or 65 years of age we're individuals that are much higher consistent or at consistently much higher risk for disease, uh, various diseases at that. So we wanted to look at this middle range in our study because we thought this is an inter- interesting window to try and capture prediabetes. So if you look at literature in the general population, prediabetes is kind of hidden subclinical disease that most people don't see for, for years. It could take five, six plus years of development before someone actually sees an overt diagnosis um, of, of full diabetes, um, which, you know, if you're looking at type two diabetes definitions, you can look at HbA1Cs above uh, 6.5 or higher, uh, fasting glucose levels, plasma, uh, blood draws, um, of 126 or greater, and then oral glucose tolerance test physically failing a 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test, looking at your glucose values of 140. Did you, did you bring your glucose down quick enough is the quick way to say it. And, um, you know, all those things are important and good diagnostic tests based on prior literature, but in our assessment, looking at continuous glycemic variables and athletes, there is a percentage that does. Uh, it is a very, very small percentage though. It's not a ton of athletes that are seeing this. If you look at fasting levels. So the reason why fasting is important is because a lot of individuals who eat high carbohydrate diets, if that's their dietary choice, um, obviously we know that carbohydrates increase blood glucose in the body and they do so postprandial, which is arguably a very normal physiologic response. Some people on Twitter will argue otherwise, and you know that's up to them to d- debate that topic. That's not my debate. I would just say that if you eat carbs, you're going to see elevations in blood glucose. We know that. There's no controversy there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, if you eat multiple meals per day, which the vast majority of people do, unless you're on a, uh, a time-restricted feeding or you're eating reduced meal uh, frequency, you're going to see those throughout your your feeding window. So usually for most people upon waking to right before they go to bed. So that's going to skew them higher during the day. And then most people would believe that you would see these resolve during the fasted nocturnal windows. And what we saw is that a percentage of individuals, athletes, healthy, normal body weight are still seeing these elevations. And in our study, it seemed to be implicated on diet. It seemed to be diet is implicated in this, this context. But all the studies that have looked at it so far, so we have one study that has 26 participants that we haven't published. We will publish it soon. Uh, the high carb and low carb uh, cohort gives us two perspectives. Flockhart uh, and Larson looked at some very high impact work recently, which is worth discussing on overreaching, overtraining, and also different types of exercise modes and how it may affect glycemic control. Um, this this you know uh, metabolic or athlete paradox uh, between. Uh, seeing kind of insulin resistance or impaired glucose glucose tolerance with long duration endurance exercise. So that's an important topic to discuss, but suffice to say, all those are the the primary studies of multi-day glycemic control. And 
we do see it in a very, very small percentage. And hopefully we'll be able to publish some of that work soon, but I will uh, introduce the idea of saying that it's, it's not everyone, it's a small percentage, but it clearly shows that it is happening in some individuals. And that didn't open the conversation of, in our study, at least when we directly assessed it, the diet did matter. In fact, diet was a huge lever in shifting all individuals into the normal range versus some individuals being much higher. Um, and of importance to add to that is that the individuals who had the greatest reduction in glucose to carbohydrate restriction were also the highest fat, uh, the highest glucose values in the high carb diet. So the individuals who were actually pre-diabetic based on the high carb, low carb, or at least fit the pre-diabetic phenotype on CGM values on the high carbohydrate diet, those 30% had the greatest reductions on carbohydrate restriction. Those 30% were also the highest fat oxidizers on the low carbohydrate diet. Not necessarily the highest fat oxidizers on the high carb diet, but the greatest responders, both glycemically and fat oxidation perspectives to this carbohydrate restriction. So it, it does open up some interesting concepts. Maybe individuals who are uh, experiencing elevated levels of glucose on a high carb diet, athletes specifically, maybe they are predisposed to responding better um, to, uh, a restriction of those carbohydrates in their diet, maybe for health reasons, but also, uh, potentially for other reasons, extending beyond that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting point because one thing, when I was reading the study, my first question was like, as I was thinking and kind of going through it was, is this like a phenotype of some sorts of this, like, like a, a subset of the population that is just going to have like kind of the same graph, so to speak, when it comes to their glucose response, but they just happen to be a little bit higher up versus like, you know, someone who'd be like closer to like, you know, before the earlier and the lower than pre-diabetic for sure, but probably even significantly below that. And the fact that you had such a drastic switch just dietarily without changing their exercise program at all, or presumably many, any really meaningful thing in their lifestyle shows that it's basically dietary. As far as I could tell, it's basically a dietary thing that's going on there. So like if it's determined that that's like ill-advised for them to be at those, those spots from a health standpoint, it is dietary that they're going to want to manipulate in order to remedy that or, uh, or I guess, carry on with it. Right. Yeah. Well, and our study definitely suggests that for sure. It says that if you were eating high carb and you uh, had elevated levels of glucose, that uh, if you switch to low carb, you were able to resolve that. Um, so no one had pre-diabetic levels um, over a 31 day average, both fasting or mean glucose values um, in the higher than hundred milligrams per deciliter on a low carbohydrate diet. But we're not, it's definitely not only our study that has shown that. That's one of the most consistent findings in the literature that when you get low enough in carbohydrates, meaning a, a less than 50 grams per day, you see a very consistent phenotype of reduced mean glucose, and reduce variability. Oftentimes the controversy really arises when you're above that 50 grams per day or above 10% by kcals, uh, at or above 10% by kcals uh, in the diet because the phenotype of a ketogenic diet is very distinct from just carbohydrate restriction. Mm -hmm. That I think is where it gets a little muddy is a lot of the literature prior to the, the rapid expansion of the ketogenic diet literature over the last two decades was just, they called it low carbohydrate, high fat diets. But what they were looking at was just lower than the average intake mm -hmm. of the mean. And the average intake for the mean is 45% kcals uh, of carbohydrates. So if you restrict your, uh, just a little bit, that's technically lowering carbohydrates into the lower carbohydrate ranges. Uh, and everyone who's publishing on this over the last two decades has kind of used a mixed level of definitions, but almost everyone's calling it lower carb 
and high fat, which everyone thinks is, is ketogenic. Um, but there's a whole range of anywhere between 10% by KCAL all the way to 45% where there's, you're not, you're not really lowering. Well, at least from what I have seen by looking at a number of studies and kind of analyzing this systemically, it's distinct. Going into ketosis is a distinct physiology that you're, you're not just lowering the carbohydrate load, which reduces, reduces the glucose load, but you're reducing the insulin load sufficiently to see marked levels of, of ketones in the body. You don't reliably see that just by carbohydrate restriction alone. There's some studies even in type, uh, especially in the type one and outside the type one diabetes literature, you can restrict carbohydrates and you're still above 10% by KCAL. You're not really going above 0.2 millimolar ketone bodies. That that's not really full-fledged ketosis based on most definitions out there, although a lot of those are arbitrary. It's worth noting that, but that's not elevating it meaningfully. Let me put it that way. And so you're not getting that metabolic change. So we're talking about, there's this, just the, the crude metrics of lowering carbohydrates, lowering glucose load, decreasing insulin, but then there's all of these metabolic processes, which also have distinct physiologic impact, like lipolysis, ketogenesis, um, in, in, you know, glycogenolysis, all, all those have distinct physiological properties and impacts that once you get low enough in carbohydrates start to be regulated differentially than when you're slightly above it and insulin's high enough to stop these processes. Cause insulin is a powerful regulator of ketogenesis, lipolysis, uh, arguably I make the argument, I believe, uh, I, I, this may not be a hill I stand on to die, but I'm pretty close to it. Insulin is, is in my opinion, the most powerful hormone in the body. Uh, and has the greatest impact on metabolism over every, almost any other hormone. Um, usually it's king, meaning if you co-administer two, two things simultaneously, insulin usually has a, 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 usually trumps, not always like you can administer glycogen on top of a high insulin load. You can still see glucose release, but insulin is usually king in these categories. So it's important to contextualize all these diets, historically speaking on what is, you know, ketogenic versus just a, a lower carbohydrate restriction. And these, these are distinguishable based on a number of properties, but all the way back to your original point, it, it, we do see it in a, a percentage of athletes. We do see pre-diabetes. It does bring about well, the highlight of the diet is implicated. We directly assess that and it directly showed that. Um, but I guess the question is, is this physiology or is this potentially pathology? And, and that's a different question, uh, Zach, that uh, is worth kind of speculating on because we don't actually have that answer yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. I think like the other follow-up question with the health side of all that too is just to get the full picture. I think like it's an interesting thing because like we have the continuous glucose monitors now that have gotten more and more popular over the last couple of years where you sort of have this you know, you can argue about their, their accuracy in the moment versus their kind of long-term predictability over the course of days. Uh, but it is live feedback as far as like what we typically see from blood panel results and things like that. So then there's also like, uh, I've done a few episodes on continuous glucose monitors and kind of one of the more interesting pushbacks I've gotten in terms of the, like, be cautious with these is it does give us access a lot of access to information for one marker versus the whole picture. Like, so what else are you changing to optimize that blood glucose range that could possibly be, be negative or something that you should at least be aware of. So um, one thing I wanted to ask you about with uh, that particular study too, is that same, the interesting thing is that, 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 like you said, that group that was in the 30% that had the pre-diabetic levels of, of resting or fasting blood glucose they were like the hyper responders on both ends. They also had the highest fat oxidation rate. So it's, it seemed like they responded aggressively to either diet. 
they also had kind of a similar interaction with their lipid profile, if I'm not mistaken, where, uh, and this is kind of a two-part question, and it also kind of opens up the, the overall question that I think the yeah. general populace is probably interested, and then also maybe another follow-up question that the low-carb community is interested in terms of uh, just like, you know, there's low-carb ketogenic diets, then there's the actual act of putting them into practice in terms of what are the inputs to get you to those macronutrient ratios and where's the optimization within that. So I guess my first question is like, what did we see from a lipid profile standpoint with that low carb group when they got their better fasting blood glucose levels? Is there any concern there? And then if there is a concern there, is there something we should consider in the low carb ketogenic community in terms of like, proper application of said diet in order to both optimize both the blood sugar as well as the lipid profile. Yeah. And that, and that gets to, um, a, quite another controversial topic, which is, you know, lipid management on, or the impact of lipids on a ketogenic diet. And that also brings up a, a very critical point. So I'm glad you brought this up about the, the weight of the benefits versus risks of any dietary approach. So other biochemical analysis we did in the study, uh, showed a lot of either trends or actually significant changes. So the, the trends we were seeing was there's a, we did me measure HbA1c, but it wasn't HbA1c was a, a valid marker of two to three months of average glucose values and doesn't always track universally for all subjects on uh, mean glucose, but 70% of the time it predicts it. Uh, and we saw a decrease in that, but it was only trends. So no significance, but it, we wouldn't expect it over such a short duration study. We needed it to be about twice as long or three times as long to really look at that. We did see, again, similar trends in, in insulin levels going lower. Uh, I think the reason we didn't see significant reductions is because I think these levels were already low in these athletes to begin with. Uh, I also think that um, when you're you're considering the, you know, these fasted levels, um, you're not considering the total weight of 24 hour windows. So, uh, another component of that is we try to keep body weight similar across groups. We did a pretty damn good job of that. Although you expect some, some little bit of water loss in the low carbohydrate diet. So if you consider that they were pretty close to equivalent and the calories were the same. So if you keep calories the same, you keep body weight the same, and you account for all these other variables, you don't necessarily always expect to see a mass reduction in a single biomarker of insulin. Maybe the 24 hour, you'll see a difference, but the area on the curve, so to speak of the whole day, but maybe not acutely, uh, but it did go down. So it did go down, but not significantly. Uh, then you start looking at other things that you bring up, which is, uh, the lipid or uh, another thing I mentioned before I go to lipids is HSCRP. So again, another thing that went down, um, but on the low carbohydrate diet, again, with all these things controlled for but then lipids. So this is where we actually saw significant differences. So we did see significant elevations in total cholesterol and LDL. Uh, we also saw elevations in HDL and um, kind of a neutral effect on triglycerides. Although typically on a low carbohydrate diet, people have lower triglycerides relative to where they previously were, which is because triglycerides seem to be largely implicated or uh, moved like a lever with carbohydrate intake. And that brings up a, a, a kind of a, a topic of what does that mean? You know, because we're talking about glucose, we have this glucose centric mindset, but glucose isn't the only thing that matters in overall health. Lipids have, have a ton of literature in the context of their potential risk in things like atherosclerosis or cardiovascular disease. So this is controversial, but maybe not super controversial in the grander scheme of cardiology. In the grander scheme of cardiology, most people are concerned about an elevation of LDL and elevation of total cholesterol as LDL has been uh, uh, mechanistically uh uh, mechanistically tied to atherosclerosis processes, higher LDL levels through mammalian randomization studies. Like uh, basically every large epidemiology data set says the higher LDL is uh, in a dose response to elevated cardiovascular events. 
et cetera. Now there's a small body of literature where people have argued, you know, hey, there's caveats to this and statin lowering drugs, the actual relative or the absolute risk reduction is, is not huge. But a lot of those studies are 5, 10 duration in time. And a lot of people argue from the cardiovascular and lipidology field that cardiovascular disease is a lifelong disease, meaning that the second um, you're born, you know, you're accumulating risk, so to speak. It's not like, you know, it's kind of like the idea of you just don't take a cigarette and smoke it and you get a lung disease, right? It's not that right, one yeah. time, oops, you got unlucky. It's like people who really <laughs> stick to that smoking over time develop that risk. So that's kind of the same concept people ascribe to the overall cardiovascular processes. Uh, in the body. Uh, it's a very controversial topic, but uh, again, most of the cardiovascular and lipidology field would argue that elevated LDL is not good, uh, is ascribed to elevated cardiovascular events. Um, but there's a unique change within the low carbohydrate diet where there is a complete shift in how lipids are processed within the body. Meaning what I mean by that, I should probably should clarify, cause that sounds unscientific. There is a drastic shift in the amount of lipids that are, uh, metabolized, uh, in proportion to other nutrients. So overall lipid metabolism is dramatically changing. So it isn't like these things are statically the same. You know, it's hard to compare someone on a high carbohydrate diet to a, a ketogenic diet and assume their lipids are exactly the same in regards to the fact that, like, for example, in our study, you had massive record levels of fat oxidation during exercise compared to the same individuals just on a higher carbohydrate approach. And so the lipid, lipid metabolism just fundamentally shifts because you get insulin low enough. And we don't really have a, a ton of any real great data and low, very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet, long-term outcomes on what their implications are if you have these elevated levels of total cholesterol and LDL. So what do we look at? We look at the data we currently have and the data we currently have says that it would be ascribed with risk, you know, the elevated levels of LDL and total cholesterol. So it is a consideration. And from an ecological perspective, most people who switch to these diets, they just go on the internet and look on what mm -hmm. they should be doing, they're probably increasing their saturated fat a hell of a lot. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, meats, um, uh, bacon, eggs, uh, those all have saturated fat. And yes, there is controversy around the idea of saturated fat actually being implicated in heart disease. It, it There's a lot of like individual studies that do show elevated saturated fat and elevated LEL and total cholesterol. And frankly, we saw in our study. So uh, individuals were seeing elevated total cholesterol and LDL. And it does bring about the question, although we don't have a large randomized controlled trial looking at individuals on a ketogenic diet, long-term on the implications of elevated lipids in these individuals who have undergone a true lipid shift, like they are on a ketogenic diet, their whole uh, systemic metabolism has changed. What's the risk? Well, we, we don't know. Mm -hmm. So we have to assume that what's happening on the high carbohydrate epidemiologic data sets applies here also. And frankly, that's probably a safe-ish assumption, but there's obvious caveats that we can't fundamentally ignore. So maybe more of a nuanced kind of response to that, but generally speaking, I'm not one to throw away total cholesterol and LDL. I'm not one to throw away the idea that saturated fat, uh, could be modulated on a diet to regulate these things. You know, there's, uh, you know, someone named Ethan Weiss, who, you know, he himself has described utilizing, it. Uh, he's a cardiologist. Mm -hmm. um, he's been on the show. Mm -hmm. There you go. Awesome. Ethan's a man. Um, and he, you know, he described, he does, he's done a ketogenic diet. Um, I, you know, as far as I've seen him described publicly, you know, he's seen benefits for himself. He's posted about that before, uh, but he's not one to ignore the LDL and total cholesterol levels. Um, and that's where conversations about shifting the amount of saturated fat in the diet, or, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of considerations. Uh, and ultimately the last thing most people want to do is take a drug. Um, but drugging it, so to speak, is what a lot of people would do if it's elevated beyond a certain level. So there is certain, there's a lot of literature to be done in this arena. And we largely are having to, uh, look at 
literature that is largely outside of the context of ketogenic diets to assume the same level of risk would be applied for same biomarker shifts um, and total cholesterol and LDL. But another point to acknowledge is that most people doing a ketogenic diet, you know, might not be like you, Zach, you know, like elite level performer, probably relatively neutral in their body weight to my assumption, uh, either way you go, cause you're, you know, exercising a hell of a lot. Right. Yeah. But what the average person who might be considering this, is, you know, most people aren't going to say, Hey, I can't wait to go into the grocery store and not eat 60% of the food. They're probably doing <laughs> it for a reason. Right. Yeah. So those reasons are usually, let's say obesity, uh, body composition, where, you know, in my case, I have type one diabetes, a lot of individuals who do these diets for glycemic control or type two diabetes for weight and glycemic control. So most people who are considering doing something that's restrictive, uh, by its nature and outside the conventional, um, approaches is usually doing it for a reason. And those individuals like say obesity, where if they see dramatic reductions in body weight, that's a positive benefit, dramatic reductions, which is like the preceding problem in that disease for all other issues, right? Dramatic improvements in maybe glycemic control. If someone also has type two diabetes, you know, in the context of type one, uh, we know that glycemic control specifically in the context of HbA1c is king. If you look at the largest clinical trials ever done, so over a thousand subjects, the DCC and EDIC trial, and look at what biomarkers actually predict cardiovascular events and overall health, HbA1c is far and away so much more important than any other biomarker. You know, you have things like blood pressure, et cetera, that are important, but all lipids were marginal at best in their impact compared to things like glycemic control and blood pressure on cardiovascular events. So the hazard ratio is something that people often describe in these large epidemiological analysis and hazard ratios or risk ratios or odd ratios. Typically when you're looking at them, a ratio of one is a, uh, like, a, is like your risk is one fold, meaning no change in risk. So if, if I had a two hazard ratio, it'd be two fold risk. So a lot of these hazard ratios is specifically in type one diabetes, where glycemic control is the primary biomarker of risk. Because, you know, when someone with type one diabetes, they're typically lean, all oh, that's an emergent problem of obesity in type one too, but they were historically lean, had normal lipids, uh, typically, you know, normal body weight. So they were like the average individual just minus glycemic control. And so it really told you how important glycemic control was by looking at type one diabetes as an example. And in that context, the hazard ratios compared to HbA1c were like one, meaning it, if you uh, hazard ratio of one means there's no risk. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean they don't matter. It just means they matter a hell of a lot less than things like glycemic control. And it's in, in this case, I'm talking about type one, but the, the, it's nuanced. It matters about the context of the disease, the pathological process the person is working with, and the total weight of the risk and benefits of why someone does the diet. Is it weight? Is it, I assume being, you know, 20 pounds, 30 pounds overweight, if you get on a ketogenic diet and lower that, uh, that seems really, really important. You know, like, if you're in type one diabetes, you're running an 8% HbA1c. If you could get it down to, you know, less than seven, less than six or normal, that seems a hell of a lot more important than say just, you know, elevations in LDL. So it's not to say that LDL doesn't matter. It's about how important are the total weight of each risk and each risk, individual risk in that total weighting. Um, and, uh, nuance matters there. Yeah. It's like taking the risk, the relative risk compared to your individual global picture. So like, yeah, someone who's optimized everything other than potentially their lipid profile, and they want to get as close to perfection as possible. It's like, maybe, are they going to be able to somehow 
find a path forward easier than say the person you described who maybe has something like type one diabetes or is obese. And they're just trying to find a dietary pattern that they can habitually stick to. Cause I actually think that's the most interesting component to this. It's like this, this stuff all looks great on paper at the end of the day, application and sustainability for the individual is what's going to actually drive the actual outcome. So like you take, uh, and this is where I think the diet, the, the diet debates and things are so funny to me because it's like everyone wants to, I shouldn't say everyone, I think the the general like online uh, atmosphere feels like everyone or each one of these groups wants to find a way to prove that their way is kind of right. the optimal one for everybody versus where I try to differentiate myself from that is I back out and say like, rather than a dietary guidelines or rather than like putting the world on a ketogenic diet or putting the world on a vegan plant-based diet, I'd rather have like a couple dozen, like really well understood versions of eating all the, eating the foods that we have available to us that add some structure and add some restriction. Cause I think restriction is the reality in, in regardless of what you're doing, restriction is going to have to play a role in our food environment because like, yeah. You just like it, the funny part is like you, you hear like everything in moderation. It's like, yeah, everything in moderation if you moderate the number of things you're picking from, because like everything in moderation would be a massive surplus based on the food environment we have in the grocery stores right. here in the United States, especially. So to me, it's like you have to look at the individual and find out what is an eating pattern that they can reasonably actually sustain for the long term. Because if they're just going to be able to do it for a year and then they fall off or are constantly falling off to the point where they're not actually doing the diet, then it's kind of besides the point. So then it's just finding some of that individual individuality within the evidence, so to speak. So if we can find a way to optimize as best we can a variety of different diets, then you can kind of leave it up to the individual and whoever they happen to be working with to kind of determine which one can I actually sustain, you're probably heading in a better global picture at the individual level then. So then it like, I mean, that's just kind of my like overview of it, I guess. Yep. And the, the, the question I sort of have though, too, is like, I'd be, this isn't maybe a question as much as it is kind of like what you get with any study is we answered some questions, we learned some cool new things, but we also probably produced two, three X additional new questions now based on what we now know that we didn't know before or think we know that we didn't know before. And the one I always find really interesting with this particular one is I don't see that, I don't think it's necessarily the case that you can't have the benefits of glycemic control with the benefits of falling in the like the typical like lipid profile that the the cardiologists of the world would say to get to it may just be a prioritizing of the fat intake that you take so it could be like an ethan weiss approach to a ketogenic diet could get you that reduction in fasting blood glucose but it could also get you a, a very nice looking lipid profile if you're also looking to get that as well it does open up the question of how sustainable is the foods that input into that for someone to actually go day in and day out and, and following. Because like you said, if someone just opens up Google and searches low-carb ketogenic diet, they are going to be introduced to a lot of saturated fat. <laughs> yep. I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, if you don't do it, nothing happens, right? So if you can't stick with it, you don't sustain what you've got. I mean, that's one of the biggest principles in exercise adaptations or even uh, any any metabolic adaptation related to a diet. You usually don't just do it and then stop doing it and maintain the benefits. Although you might get some lingering, lingering benefits, but you get it as you get the benefits usually as long as you sustain it. 
And yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's valid. You know, there's plenty of literature showing that, you know, all dietary change, not exclusive to a ketogenic diet is going to lead to reduced compliance. Um, in some percentage of the individuals, not everyone, some people stick with this forever. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for example, I've done, I've done almost every diet on the sun, um, uh, personally, but I stick with a, a, a low carbohydrate diet because it just manages the most important biomarker. My overall health as a type one diabetic, um, every day, which is, you know, uh, glycemic control. And for me, that's paramount. Like I can literally feel the difference in glycemic control by going low or high. Uh, and that's a very, very tight window, um, for type one. And in mm -hmm. fact, so much, so tight that the, the traditional, uh, uh, time and range has been extended for type one diabetes to not be 70 to 140. The true medical definition is 70 to 120. People extended that to 70, 140 for certain, uh, disease assessments, but it's still considered normal glycemia. But in type one, time and range is 70 to 100, 180, which is not time and normal. It's just time and range, um, so to speak. So, you know, sustainability matters here, not to get too far on tangent glycemic control again, but sustainability absolutely matters. But I think it's also important to appreciate that a lot of people look at the literature and look for solutions. It's like drugs, right? Mm -hmm. You're looking for the best data out there on if I was a clinician or healthcare professional and a patient walking or someone's a coach and they're working with someone a dietitian, et cetera, like anyone essentially working with someone or someone trying to figure this out for themselves, you want to look at the literature and say, what will generally happen to me if I do this diet? And I think we have a lot of those answers right now. We, we know that, uh, you know, it's probably going to reduce insulin. You're probably going to see some lipid changes. Um, you know, depending on if you have like type one or type two diabetes, you may see some improvements in your glycemic control. Like we just think we can expect to see and might be why you try to do it. But the truth is without trying it and seeing how it, it works with your lifestyle um, and, and your the caveats, like, you know, I have two young boys, you know, one, uh, well, almost getting on one and a half at this point, but a one and four-year-old. And, uh, you know, I couldn't imagine doing a different approach because this approach is so easy to manage glycemic control, relatively speaking. I couldn't even imagine entertaining a different approach because that works for my lifestyle. It works for also my glycemic control. But hell, if someone's eating like 800 carbohydrates a day and they get uh, amazing gly glycemic control and they do something different and it deteriorates, then I think they have their answer. <laughs> they mm -hmm. yeah. should be getting better glycemic control, right? Uh, assuming that everything else doesn't deteriorate along the way. Um, but you're right. You have to stick with it. You have to be able to maintain it. All diets are going to come with their complications. I think that has become an emergent topic, especially in the context of what you said, ultra processed foods. Mm -hmm. I am, I am a believer. Um, I don't think it's controversial to most people that ultra processed foods in the food environment is a huge problem. Um, it's like, uh, you're fighting against, uh, it, fighting against a unbelievable stimulus and pushing people in the wrong direction for metabolic health, uh, just every single day going to the grocery store. Um, I mean, there's ketogenic foods like keto snacks too. Mm -hmm. Like there, yeah. nothing's immune. Like there's no community or diet that's immune to some of these approaches, uh, or, uh, caveats and, or triggers for people to maybe overeat, have low satiation, changing their, their neurobiology in such a way, um, that precludes them to overeat. So I'm on board with everything you said. I totally agree. I think there's a, a it's worth considering though, that while everyone wants to see great data, everyone wants to see what, you know, what's universally going to happen on the average. We have to consider that if you look at like Ethan Y study on intermittent fasting, you can see these beautiful plots of each individual's response to specific diets, intermittent fasting or not. And there are these, these bars that go over this long spectrum. And it shows that if you were to just look at the mean bar graph, it wouldn't be very exciting. But if you look at the individual responses, there was a hell of a lot of people who had unbelievable responsiveness to intermittent fasting mm -hmm. and some who had a bad response. And so 
it's important to realize that individualization will always be king. Um, and that's where coaches, dietitians, healthcare professionals, doctors have to appreciate that and, and try to elucidate what might be a, a quick snapshot of what might or might not work and help guide people on that journey. Unfortunately, diet is not an often taught tool. You know, you do have dietitians who actually are trained in this, but even in dietitians, there was a study by uh, Conklin, I think it's Anna Conklin in Canada, looking at um, how many like registered dietitians in healthcare clinics in Canada, uh, selecting a number of clinics to look at how, how prepared were registered dietitians as a field that knows nutrition to implement therapeutic carbohydrate restriction. So this idea of restricting carbohydrates for therapeutic use. And 66% of them describe being unprepared to do it or not supported to do it. Mm. That's a problem, right? So this is a very valuable tool, but the healthcare interaction and, and patients need support. You know, um, they need to be able to have people who can help guide them along the way. And it's a little bit of tangent to your original point, which it has to be sustainable. Totally agree. But a big part of that sustainability problem is having support on how to Knowing do how it to effectively it. and healthy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. I think it's like, if in a perfect world, I would say like we would take the the kind of the popular dietary programs that have sort of gotten enough i mean i think we can probably look at some of these in their relative popularity even if it's kind of like ebbs and flows over years as like there's a reason people are gravitating towards because there's like an intuition that pulls them towards it for one reason or the other so like we can maybe select uh of the hundreds of thousands of possible combinations of foods you could come up with you know a, a list of like like 20 or so that follow some of the popular like templates that we've seen some good evidence to suggest that they can be useful in some capacity and then having them like put in a way where like they're structured enough. So some of the user can look at it and, and sort of self-identify, like, let's say like, if you gave me a list of like 20 eating patterns or 20, like food, like, like just like it's spelled out as like, this is what you're basically eating on this for this diet versus this diet for this diet, I could probably narrow that down to three, four, five at most of like, these are ones that I can just, just can tell based on my food preferences, I'm going to be able to stick to better than the other 17 to 15. And then it's like, then you're just kind of playing trial and error. Like you said, within those, that smaller list of uh, um, options in terms of just like, uh, which one is actually going to play out as one that I can, I can do well. So that it sort of almost kind of like removes us from the, we, we save a bunch of like energy and oxygen by not arguing about which one's better and invest all that energy and oxygen into like the fine tuning of all of them to some degree. And then people have like, so then people aren't looking at who's right, who's wrong. They're looking at, here's what I have to pick from. It's a big enough list. That I don't feel restricted, but I need to individualize it. And then it kind of like fits your your sort of process of going through a variety of different things and ultimately finding like the version of a, like a low carb ketogenic diet that you find like really works well for your life. And you can't think of a reason why you would diverge from it. Well, Zach, that's a hell of a, a hell of a lot of level headedness that you just put out there. Um, uh, and maybe how utopia you? too. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, but I, you know, this kind of gets on a little bit advocacy soapbox for a second, because I definitely think there's nuance to that, right? There's certainly certain diseases that are, uh, predictively more responsive to one specific diet, et cetera. But generally speaking, I think you hit the nail on the head and it's just all too reasonable uh, of a, of a note. Um, but you know, this gets to a, a research advocacy standpoint, which is as a researcher who studies nutrition, 
um, and some of the nuances of nutrition for various domains uh, with a huge interest in diabetes, uh, we know that nutrition and exercise can be as or more powerful on average based on the weight of the evidence than most pharmaceutical drugs. Um, so, and technology that's currently available to patients. It's so powerful, so incredibly important, usually universally non-toxic as well, depending on what you're doing, right? Like you could do some stupid things, but generally <laughs> speaking, if you don't do some stupid things uh, and it's well-formulated, these are great, amazing tools. Yet they have largely been some of the most underfunded initiatives for overall health assessment compared to most biological interventions. And that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So we doubt at least have a, a few researchers have championed and been able to get funding in this realm. Um, but you look in certain diseases like type one diabetes, you look at the major organizations who provide funding, like a, a lot of them, nutrition is not even on the initiatives, even though it's such a critical part of the disease. This is not to point fingers or anything. It's just to say it's not a priority. Uh, in a lot of contexts, people are looking for other solutions. If you were to look at the rising worldwide interest in things related to type two diabetes on Google trends, like a year or two ago, um, for type two diabetes, ketogenic diet was number one. It was rapidly rising its interest. Mm -hmm. You look now it's like semi-glutatide, right? So the drug that, which has valid reason to be, um, mm -hmm. uh, Ozempic, uh, these GLP one agonists, like super powerful drugs that can help assist people on their journey amplified by the social nature of social media to drive people's controversy on the topic to make more people aware of it now the vicious cycle but either way uh, i say all this to say that nutrition exercise is critically important extremely well underfunded and i do agree that probably some of the most important things to get across the line is now we know nutrition uh, we've known nutrition matters okay like we've known uh carbohydrate restriction is actually standard of care in the 1800s for type 2 diabetes uh, if you look at historical textbooks looking at type 2 diabetes in history obesity and type 2 diabetes the standard of care for those was carbohydrate restriction mm -hmm. um uh tattersall uh, wrote a, a great bibliography on this type 1 diabetes is the same case uh a lot of people focus on seizure as like the emergence of the ketogenic diet no 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 that was diabetes and obesity um <laughs> seizures came in the 1921s it was it was uh used in type 1 diabetes earlier than that to prolong the life of patients who were inevitably going to die without insulin but extended their life for years beyond that um, and gave them more time and then type 2 diabetes it was it was standard of care right so um but either way i it, it's just a problem in general that it's not focused on and i i think if we were if the incentive structures were a little different, uh, Zach, I think, and this, this, I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist guy, but if the incentive structures were different, um, and universal healthcare was a, the paramount of most importance, luckily you have things like the NIH that support the good ideas. Um, it's not a perfect system, but it's a damn good one that publicly funds taxpayer dollars to do researchers and try to deconflict them from having to assign themselves to any one particular approach, but they can just apply to money. If it's a good study design then you might be lucky enough to get funded. All said, underfunded, huge, huge potential impact. And on your point that I could not agree more that if we could find ways to make these more accessible and sustainable for people, we'd have a lot less issues. Um, and there's some other things that could help a lot. Like, I don't know if, if anything can be done about ultra processed foods, but my God, I, I think that's a big issue. Yeah. Um, a, a very, very big issue. Mm -hmm. And and ironically, that I feel is the one that most of the vocal dietary tribes can, to some degree, agree upon. Is that the the highly processed foods are probably the biggest culprit in terms of making things difficult or sustainable? Because each one of these diet tribes have seen that I think move into their world, and 
I find it kind of hilarious in the sense that like, since I got interested in nutrition, you know, I went through the whole, the, all the low carb kind of growth over the last decade plus, um, I saw the carnivore movement come in like after that and kind of get a big up. So I mean, it to some degree still is, uh, and, and you, it, I knew enough to go back and look at like kind of popularity on the vegan diet and things like that. And to, just to see like, what are the common trends between all of these, or there's obviously differences, but what are things that kind of each one of these communities have in common? And one of them is at a certain point, they get large enough or popular enough where marketing dollars are incentivized to develop a product that's both cheap and that they can sell easily. And that is oftentimes going to be an ultra processed version of that diet. So it's like an ultra processed version of a vegan meal, an ultra processed version of a keto ketogenic meal, an ultra processed version of a carnivore. I mean, we even see it. You'd think that one would maybe be void of it, but no, you can get some ultra processed yep. versions of a carnivore, like approved nutrition thing. So it's like, as soon as you hit a certain amount of popularity, that's going to enter. That's just the market. So it's like, I think when the, when the, 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 the tribes, so to speak, agree that that is probably something we should all be aware of or that we can all rally behind and find some common ground. And we probably get closer to at least being able to get to get a, get at a table and sit down and say, okay, where are the, where are some benefits here? for all of us, if we have like some, some similarities versus only differences and only arguments. I, I again, agree. I, I, you know, speaking to the choir here, I, for, for what, and then you talk about common things. I think another common thing that we can appreciate across a lot of these diets, especially like a ketogenic diet is a lot of ultra processed foods or carbohydrate based, at least historically had been. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, as they become popular, other options have come up to make ultra processed options of ketogenic foods. But if you go on a ketogenic diet, you're, you're obviously limiting a lot of highly palatable, low satiating food options that make it harder to sustain caloric restriction and then lose weight, which is why a lot of people are doing this, right? And the biggest problem I think we have is overweight and obesity, at least by the numbers. So, you know, a lot of these common terms, like you talk about a vegan diet, that's what it, we're talking about is a, a very whole foods based approach. Talk about mm -hmm. a ketogenic diet. You're removing a lot of the foods that are ultra processed by default because 60% mm -hmm. of the grocery store, not all of them, uh, is in the center aisles. And a lot of those are prepackaged processed foods. Um, so that's a common theme as well, but I, I love this quote, you know, regardless of the controversy of beyond me. Okay. The CEO of beyond me got on, I think it was a professor before, and then left completely to develop a, an alternative meat product. And he spoke on a podcast, um, by Guy Ross, um, on how I built this. And it was like a brilliant podcast. Uh, and he said that when people talked about making an alternative meat product, you know, that's super controversial, whatever. I don't care about that. What I thought was so fascinating was that he described how it was not good enough to just have a new product on the market, but that he had to develop a product that was superior to the currently available products on the market to make the market move. Mm -hmm. And I think that theme may be applicable here is if any uh, entrepreneurs are listening, and are looking for ways to revolutionize health and do so in a way that doesn't put them at, it doesn't compromise some of the things you said, which is, you know, putting people at risk for overeating or um, simple solutions, so to speak, that often preclude them to not being perfect solutions to a problem is maybe there there's, if someone finds a way, it won't be easy. It'll be tremendously difficult. Hence why it's not very universal at this point to find means to make money. 
you know, it's a capitalist society in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, so ultimately making money is going to be the, the precedence for many things changing or moving the needle. So just putting that out there, I mean, I don't, it, as much as people can argue about that topic, money moves things. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you can find innovative entrepreneurs who find ways to make money and provide incentives to make options that aren't going to be clouded by these other caveats along the way and people getting more sustainable approaches, whether they build a healthcare system uh, for easily accessible approaches to help people sustain on dietary approaches. That could be one. Uh, finding easier access to knowledgeable professionals to be able to guide them on nutrition or exercise sustainable uh, applications, whether it be an app that helps people manage their, their diet uh, or lifestyle better. Uh, I mean, hell, if you could make the Twitter version of the, the Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, or TikTok version of things that actually promoted your health, Oh my yeah. gosh, how amazing would that be? You know, you get on Twitter or Instagram before you know it, you're like stemmed in. Um, they got you, right? And so if you could find similar things that were that addicting, that effective, but actually made you better, actually improved your health, how amazing could that be? But it obviously takes innovation and people with the right motivation incentives and a lot of hard work. And, uh, you know, those are things that don't always mesh together uh, to make someone... Uh, money, which is ultimately the end goal for a lot of people going on that route. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And um, I do want to pivot, but I also want to be respectful of your time, Dr. Yep. Kutnik. I know like if you need to get going, then we can do this different day, different time type of a scenario, um, which is the performance side, which I do think is going to be a little more abbreviated because I think that's more questions in terms of just like what would be cool follow-ups to the study you most recently did, which I suspect are maybe in the works to some degree already, but uh, or at least being thought about, because I just have a hard time believing I'm the first person to think of any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, let's, if you want to do some rapid fire, let's, sure. let's go for it. Hey, folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors include Element T electrolytes and Delta G ketone esters. Element T electrolytes can be found at drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and are offering a free sample pack with your first purchase. And Delta G ketones can be found at deltagketones.com. Also, give them a follow at deltag.ketones on Instagram. Yeah, so I think like if we pivot away from the health side into the performance side, I think like obviously the interesting thing about the study is just the, first of all, the control of just like making sure that things like, you know, it's not wildly different from a energy intake, weight loss, or no, I shouldn't say weight loss because that wasn't the goal, but just like a weight maintenance, weight stable, relative or a relative if something changes, it changes in both groups, I guess is what I'm trying to say, so that you can kind of tease out that, oh, one group lost weight or one group gained weight, therefore that's what drove the results. So like you, you guys controlled for a lot of that stuff. You had, uh, it wasn't like a limitation in the sense that there wasn't like different intensities involved. Cause I think it's like, yeah, we target, you targeted the point of contention, which is once you passed, you know, say 65, 70% of your VO2 max on a ketogenic diet, that's where a lot of people are saying, I suspect we're going to see the performance start to dip. Um, I think like the next follow-up question is, and maybe some of this is the structure of this particular approach is I am curious what happens when you take that exact framework that you, that you all used in the study, but you just place it into like an actual like periodized training program that are include the components that you had amongst the other components of training, as well as probably an amplification of the ones you touched on. So when I think of like the workout structures, 
of like the time trial. Uh, it, was it a mile? Am I remembering that properly? Yep. One okay. Mile. The mile time trial. And then the six by 800, which was roughly about three minutes, which I think is perfect. I think it's like three minutes is a great VO2 max workout, like target. So we're like right in the world of endurance training at that point. Uh, I'm thinking of it as like, the way I like to describe this is when I first got into low carbohydrate ketogenic stuff, I started out strict ketogenic for a while in the beginning. Then I got off of my off season and got into kind of my, my, my training program. And I got to a point in my training where I felt like some carbohydrate above and beyond what I had been doing, which was pretty strict. I was in that like 50 gram or lower realm. Now I'm adding like, you know, upwards to 15, sometimes 20 hours of training stimulus to my lifestyle. So you can argue that now I should be operating under that 10% principle versus a gram principle. I noticed with some some increase in carbohydrate, I was better able to sort of push past like a perceived governor at some of those higher intensities. So in my mind, it became a question of like seasons with or phases within the training program, determining how low carb I go. Uh, you know, even at my highest carbohydrate intake, I'm still very much in the low carb world in terms of like macronutrient ratios from carbs to fats to proteins, but perhaps not as low as the subjects in your study. And my question then is like, if you would add in say like a program where now you're not just doing that six by eight, but maybe you're building that up to like a larger short interval session or what I would probably more likely do, which is add a second, one of those sessions per week on top of it, have some increase in volume above the 50 kilometer per week timeframe. Are we seeing some sort of variance in terms of that performance remaining? Cause I'm thinking like, even my like non-professional runners, uh, my weekend warriors were typically building up a fair bit above 50 K, especially for ultra marathons. So then it's like, if I'm increasing both volume and intensity above and beyond what we saw at this study design, are there, is this something we can extrapolate forward into that? Or is that a question we should be asking in terms of, is there going to be some either middle ground or are we back to the original where now we're back to moderate high carbohydrate as being what is needed essentially to rinse and repeat that lifestyle in a concentrated, a more concentrated timeline than what the study produced. It needs to be studied. So okay. uh, rapid answer fire to that is, um, so we did short duration. There's there, you know, Volick did, um, 70% of VO2 max sustained exercise, but only look at the metabolic components. You didn't look at performance, nor mm -hmm. would performance necessarily be a good judge because you truly hand selected the best, uh, in that study. So, um, that's another question is how does that play out longer duration? Um, some people argued when faster study came out, um, that some degree of, uh, fat oxidation was actually, um, required to facilitate carbohydrate uh, utilization, metabolically speaking. And so either way, I think the longer durations are an important topic because most people are still going to lean on the idea that longer duration performance is lower just because there hasn't really been many studies to counter that thinking until you get to the extreme end that you engage in Zach, um, on the complete other end of the spectrum, uh, very extreme other end of the spectrum. Um, I think long durations matters. I also think there's a, a question mark. Um, and you bring it up, but it's also been discussed in this community, which is, you know, uh, even during individuals training sessions, you know, train high or, or so train low, perform high in the context of carbohydrates. Um, this idea of maybe leveraging higher levels of fat oxidation so that you can tap into it. But then when you, you perform, you're able to, um, maybe, uh, provide a little bit more carbohydrates. I, that's honestly the best we can do right now is look at individual studies in specific context and, and extrapolate assumptions. Mm -hmm. Um, so we don't know. 
Um, I, and I think the best we could do is if like, let's say you had a ton of elite athletes who were willing to contribute their observational assessment and just assess these individuals and see how they're doing right now would be a good introduction to that and see, you know, what they're doing, how they're training it. Cause I, I think one thing that gets lost is in these controlled studies, we did less than 50 grams per day, but I do wonder if a lot of athletes don't do what you do, which is migrate back, you know, regress, regress in the mean, so to speak. So start increasing a little bit of carbs in their, their diet. And does that, does that matter? Does it, you know, if you already get ketogenic and, and you're able to resolve, let's say in this case, if you're one of the high carb, um, individuals who are, you know, had prediabetes levels of glucose control, and you're concerned about that and you had equivalent performance on either diet. So you want the glycemic control benefits. And so you switch low carb, um, maybe you can still maintain those benefits by going higher from a health perspective, but specific to your question on performance. Yeah. These are questions that haven't really been answered in, outside of individualized designs. I will not acknowledge that Louise Burke did a periodized training program on low carb and mm -hmm. it showed performance declines. Okay. But that gets to that point of that, that study was three weeks in duration. Multiple and, stressors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're talking about uh, a new training program, a new diet, a new uh, progressive training program, plus an exercise, uh, sorry, progressive training program. That's one stress Two, a diet shift. That's the second stress. So you're adding multiple forms of stress because we know it takes an adaptation on this diet. So that is in and of itself, its own stressor. Mm -hmm. And that's why we try to control everything and just do a diet, a carbohydrate to fat switch activity, body composition, um, controlling the sure in the diet was the same activity levels. That's why we did that the way we did in our study, because those are not often controlled across these studies. And that's also why we wanted four weeks in duration, because there is a, at least a hypothesized belief that going long enough on these diets does matter in your ability to fully switch over, um, uh, your ability to kind of, I don't want to say optimize, but leverage some of the functional benefits that take time to accumulate, uh, which some of which like glycogen content probably take a lot longer than that, at least based on the, the spotty literature we have right now. And the four studies that actually look at carb restriction and glycogen content. So to your point, yeah, there's a, there's actually a lot that needs to still be done and keep in mind that, you know, in the context of exogenous ketones, we probably don't have time to go into this today, but you know, a lot of people uh, look at exogenous ketones and they're kind of like mixed results and kind of just assume, okay, whatever won't really do very much, but keep in mind that carbohydrates were optimized have, and have been optimized for the last like three, four plus decades. You know, this idea of how you do like mixed types of you know, mm -hmm. fructose plus the, you know, all yeah. these little nuanced components, this has taken decades to optimize and, uh, uh, and put together. You know, we're not quite there yet. There's a huge amount of interest in these dietary shifts and some key market studies that have come out. But if you look at the meta-analysis on people comparing high versus low carb, there isn't anywhere near the amount of literature there is on looking at just different forms of carbohydrate administration mm -hmm. um, to performance. So yeah, we don't, we don't know as much. Um, so we have to assume a lot here. So yeah, yeah. there's, I, I guarantee any of these questions you come up with, I could say maybe, and uh, we probably need to study. Right. That. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's so funny too, because like when I saw your study come out, it was so interesting to me because this has been a kind of a question I've been asking myself off and on since 2014. And my kind of introduction to it was I had at that point, I had been following a low carbohydrate diet for you know quite a while to the point where I, I was like two, three years into it. I had sort of come up with like the approach that was working well for me from a performance standpoint. And I, I recognized that like, if I went very strict, like if I went like below 50 grams, like consistent, consistently, if I headed to the track and did like a traditional 400 meter workout, uh, I could nail it. Like it, I didn't have to reintroduce carbohydrates or anything. And it was like 
pretty high volume, even compared to the ones that you had in your studies. I think it was like somewhere in the nature of like 16 to 20 by 400. So total volume was, you know, four or five miles of workload at like a VO2 max intensity. And it's like, you know, I did fine. I like had historically high caliber results on that workout is what I had produced throughout my career at the time. And, you know, with, you know, regardless of diet, you know, and prior I had been doing moderate high carbohydrate diet when I had done workouts like that more consistently. So it was like even comparability to that was different. And where I ran into issues was the sustainability of that when I had to tighten the window between those type of sessions. So like yeah. the way I would describe it is like on moderate high carb, I could do that session and then I could repeat it probably in a two days. Whereas on a strict ketogenic diet, if I did that workout, I might not be able to reproduce that till the next week. So like, that's where I think maybe the little bit of wiggling around is in terms of kind of finding a way to maybe like reintroduce some carbohydrates at the right time so that you can close that window without putting yourself back into the moderate high carbohydrate category. I think that this is valid. And I think that, you know, it brings up a, a, a nuanced question as well um, that I, a professor, a friend of mine at uh, Ohio State University, uh, Kathy Saints, um, S-A-E-N-Z, um, She's talked about this before and this idea of, you know, choosing a diet, meaning not just for the acute performance effects, but for the long-term recovery effects. And that's an open-ended question about, you know, some of the implications of that longer term. But to your point um, about the idea of, of reintroducing them at the right times, I I, I, I think there's a caveat. Uh, I think there's a completely valid point, but I do think there's something to reintroducing carbs that have to be carefully and prescriptively introduced if you want to continue to stay in this kind of ketogenic window, which has its own individualized uh, physiology, potential mm -hmm. benefits and metabolic kind of uh, uh, endogenous like biochemistry, right? So if you get too far out of that window, you're, there's some literature that says that you kind of, this kind of switching back and forth uh, doesn't really produce these this ketogenic state reliably. And you're really just kind of, it doesn't, there's wasn't derived benefits from doing that, but there's a different conversation to be had when someone does it as much as you, as long and as, and as intense as you have, and it's in duration. There is also literature in those individuals who habituate long-term that short little, uh, exposés into high carbohydrate meals, um, do not cause them to get out of ketosis. They stay in it actually. So, um, I think for those individuals, if they have habituated to it long enough, maybe it's this idea of, you know, this is pure speculation right now, but it is based on the literature I understand and what I've seen actually in practical environments that people tend to do a lot better when they stick to something for a long period of time, really get used to it, uh, kind of, you know, uh, you know, grind their, their, their feet or, you know, really sit, sit, sink their feet and teeth into, um, one approach really go for it. And then they start tinkering around with individualized changes at, at specified times where it makes sense. You know, when you say the eight by, you, know, not, you, didn't, you didn't do eight by 400 meters, but you were doing uh, a lot more than that from what you were saying. Um, obviously that'd be an opportunity to think, okay, well, carbohydrates might be important for that. Let me see if I can leverage some of that and get, derive some benefits and not kick myself out of the, the, the reason I'm doing this approach in its totality. Because there's this fine window too, Zach, when you're talking about totally high carb and greater than 45%. Then you get into the middle carbohydrate range, which you might be able to you know, erase some of those benefits, probably not completely for all individuals, 
but in the moderate carbohydrate range, because then you start talking about a Western diet. Um, mm. you know, and obviously Western diets conflated by ultra processed foods and other considerations, but when you have high fat and high carb, if not completely erased with a, a, a high volume of exercise have been associated with problems. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's reasons for that. That's much more nuanced than the conversation we're having here, but suffice it to say there, there's a lot of health benefits described to these two extreme ends, you know, very, very low carbohydrate, very, very high, you know, carbohydrate approaches. Uh, it seems like this middle ground, you don't, you don't get as much of a pass. In fact, I've seen that in some of these large data sets we've looked at and analyzed, um, that in the middle carb, moderate carbohydrate range, so right below high carb is where you, some of the worst outcomes are. Um, and that's where mm -hmm. we see it as well on a general population level, um, for other outcomes. Um, so either way, I think there's something to sticking to whatever you're doing. And I do think that there's a place and time to leverage it. And I do think the individual individualized biochemistry and endogenous physiology of the individual and their goals and their environment are all going to play into what they individualize do. This is why educated health practitioners, um, clinicians, coaches, uh, uh, will always have a job, uh, and will always, uh, be out there and, and, and be able to help individual people on an individual level. Cause even like Ozempic, yes, it, it, it helps reduce uh, caloric intake and is an unbelievably revolutionary drug in obesity, you still have to reduce calories. So that's helping you reduce the stimulus, but what calories do you then consume? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, do you, do you need to consider resistance training because you're losing weight so rapidly, you know, there's all these other nuance. And then do you need to have a higher proportion of protein in your diet, uh, now because you're calorically restricting so much to offset muscle loss? Like there's all these little nuances that educated individuals on these topics uh, can help someone go down that road, but, you know, when it comes to a coach or anything along those lines, experience is King. Um, and the literature we're often doing is just trying to give real refined answers in a controlled manner to what is real and what isn't real. Uh, and sometimes research really does revolutionize I thinking on something, but coaches, um, healthcare practitioners are usually seeing some iteration of what we study early years earlier. Right. Um, and they're usually way above the, the, the curb on that. So, um, yeah, I kind of went off on the off, off on your original question, but, uh, I wanted to make a note of that. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense too. And you're 100% correct. It's like, you can get way more creative with your, I also, I'll call it hyper palatable foods when you're doing what I'm doing and you're trying to maintain a lifestyle that requires the two to three times your resting metabolic rate. So yeah, you, to some degree, it's like, I laugh about this too in some regard, because I'm probably not the best example of it. Cause I do skew pretty low carbohydrate compared to the average person, but, uh, you get like, if there is a spot for a hyper palatable food, it's living a lifestyle that I do. So like, I've got all sorts of friends that are much more moderate carbohydrate than, or just basically an eat anything in sight type of mentality. And they definitely get away from it, get away with it because of their lifestyle versus it being something that would be optimal for the average person to be kind of doing. Yeah. And I, I want to add to that point, which gets back to the original study we were discussing, um, which is the high versus low carbon, seeing some incidences of prediabetes and all the discussion we've already had on that. It was interesting. After that study came out, first off, it was total shock to me. I'm not going to act like I knew that was coming. <laughs> I did not. I didn't see that coming at all. Um, although some people hypothesized that was the case, actually some of the authors like, uh, you, you know, on, on our, on our paper who helped uh, contribute to designing all these things and making it a possibility, they had put it out there for a long time that they thought this was a case, but honestly, I didn't believe them. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm just being totally frank with you. I was yeah. like, oh, that's bullshit. Uh, no way that that's the case. If you're an athlete and you have normal body weight, those are the, in my head, 
those were the problems. That's what's that's what's leading all these individuals to not be able to completely resolve their issues. That's another thing. When I saw some of the Verda studies that had come out or the carbohydrate restriction studies, and they didn't really get back to normal glycemia, I'm like, okay, that's because they weren't really exercising enough mm-hmm. or they weren't completely normal body weight. They just kind of got better, but weren't completely in the normal ranges for everything. Um, but our study kind of uh, hit me on the head and made me realize me, I'm like, nah, there's something else going on here. And I do think that that opens up a, a, a when you talk about future studies or future ideas and, and other considerations that may come um, in the future, you know, I do think there's a question about what are the implications of this in a health perspective? Because, you know, Flockhart and, and Larson, this beautiful study in cell metabolism where they did overreaching, um, you know, this is an attrition study. This was a truly overreaching study where they did uh, three or four successive weeks of super, super high intensity interval training and like quite, quite literally like quadru- like we're increasing load volume double and like fivefold almost over this week, uh, multi-week paradigm. And they were seeing benefits up to a point. And then all of a sudden they got to the very end and it was too excessive. And it caused the individuals to basically plateau, get insulin resistance, um, and impaired oral glucose tolerance. And then they did a follow-up study, um, and actually showed that the specificity of the type of exercise, like long durations, endurance exercise seemed to preclude certain individuals to have impaired oral glucose tolerance and insulin resistance. And it was the long duration endurance exercise that did that. But the biochemistry assigned to that, and you know, no one would assume that these endurance athletes are have poor health. You know, you think they have, you know, great health, but maybe there is something to this. And we talked a lot about the health implications here and talked about the neutrality of performance. And then, you know, some also conversations about the individualization of not only the diet within the individual, but the individual themselves. But I do think there's a lot of open questions. Uh, particularly on the type of exercise, because almost all these studies we've talked about and looked at are long duration endurance exercise on a cycling or running paradigm. What about weightlifting? Mm -hmm. What about, um, mixed forms of sports where it's not just purely endurance for very long durations, because these emergent studies have made me start to wonder a lot more about this idea of because another thing that came along with the the Flockhart study that recently came out with a impaired oral tolerance and some signs of insulin resistance, not gold standard insulin resistance, but signs of it, um, was a robust increase in fat oxidation in that group. And we also saw a robust incidence. Uh, we, well, our context is a little different in that we had rapid elevations in fat oxidation but not all these signs of insulin resistance affect improvements in glycemic control. And this is where it gets into this nuance of, you know, diet specific effects, stimulus versus exercise stimulus, and then their interactive effects, which is your point, because we controlled for that. But you're talking about this bigger question of how does this change versus the nuance of a training program like periodization um, uh, or any of these principles that apply not only to just running, or endurance exercise, but apply to all forms of athletic performance, periodization, volume, progression. Um, these are very common themes that are, you can kind of understand it. You understand how most people progress, mm-hmm. uh, in a sport. Um, uh, but either way, uh, a lot of yeah. questions to be answered for sure. Yeah. And we can, we can close on this, but it is like one of those things where I, that's another question I've been really interested in is like, when you do change the dynamics of the intent from performance standpoint, where you're getting into that super high intensity, where, the activity itself has a physical limiter that is like just so smaller in terms of volume that you can tolerate that the impact it's going to have on the, on, on your glycogen is just not going to like, you, you cannot outwork your glycogen <laughs> reserve, so to speak. 
to the degree where it's like what I'm doing and what a lot of Olympic distance endurance athletes are doing is they're hitting this like relative to the spectrum of intensity, moderate to like high, moderate intensity, just so they can do tons of it, but it, it's also high enough where it's going to require some, some glycogen impact. And then it's just that perfect balance between duration and intensity that puts them into this position where like, you know, the refeeding becomes a little more of a, uh, of a question versus like someone doing something so high intensity that like the limiter is, like I said, like the physical ability to re repeat that exercise on a frequent enough basis to actually do a meaningful bit of damage to their glycogen stores. And I would be very curious how like that would translate to a ketogenic diet for someone like that. It, I think glycogen is one of the most interesting questions to be answered on a long duration ketogenic diet, because at present, a lot of the uh, studies being done and actually quantify glycogen levels are not using gold standard per se, but what they are at least showing at this point is that they appear to reduce glycogen and appears to reduce it less and less over time as you habituate to the diet. And that appears to be one of the longest biometrics to adapt. Mm -hmm. It doesn't appear to adapt rapidly. It appears to adapt over time, but no one has actually assessed that within a cohort over a prolonged period of time. What you're usually doing is taking a single snapshot of an individual over a, at a one time point. Okay. So like you might do pre and post a diet, uh, and that's wonderful, but a lot of the longer duration studies like, uh, Volk's faster study and another study that is six to eight months in duration, uh, forget, I'm forgetting the first author's name, but it was beautiful. They did some tracer work as well. Uh, so apologize to the author for forgetting, um, uh, their name here, but, uh, they shall reductions still at that point. So you know, it makes me want either way, glycogen is an open in a question because clearly there's data that shows that reductions can impair performance or things that reduce glycogen content can reduce performance pretty quickly. Uh, but there's also a lot of literature in low carb where they are already reduced in glycogen and they're still performing exact same. So there maybe the glycogen question is, it, first off, it seems very important, but there might be some unique nuances that are applicable to low carb to compensate for that. Mm -hmm. Um, like Luis Burke, uh, published a really brilliant study kind of looking at the different durations of, uh, uh carbohydrate restriction and its implications on various biochemical systems. And it was wonderful. And, you know, one thing that's harped on in that is the metabolic advantage of glucose carbohydrates for oxygen consumed. So oxygen consumed per ATP produced, but again, you know, we're not seeing any of these, uh, well, in greater than four durations, looking at these meta-analysis that are recently come out, not just our study, but there seems to be a lot of neutrality in actual performance outcomes. Um, and when there is any decrement, it's usually in shorter duration habituation to the diet. And that's really gets down to like those reductionist um, kind of uh, uh, focus are important, like to understand the biochemistry of why we see what we see is happening. But what, we're, what we traditionally thought was happening isn't quite panning out as frequently in the literature. We're starting to see a lot of neutral impacts on diet and, and performance outcomes, uh, to where I think some people may argue that the weight of the evidence is, is on neutrality, uh, which is this theme of like, when you say in the very beginning, when you got this, this call, like, what is a take home? I think the take home is like, most people can do what they want as long as they stick to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but obviously clearly there's some benefits of a diet that is nuanced enough. If it's focused on glycemia or lipid health, that has to be individualized to the person, what they can accomplish sustainably, uh, and what they are hoping to ultimately improve most certainly if they're in the context of a disease or have some pathology, which certainly provides more nuance to that conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, excellent. I think that's a great spot to end on. And uh, I'm incredibly uh, grateful for your time, Dr. Putnik. And uh, if you ever want to come back on and chat more, you just let me know. I think it'd be fun to have a follow-up to this one. 
Zach, it was an honor. Appreciate it. All right, cool. Take care. You too. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.